0: You're listening to The Good GP, the podcast for busy GPs.
1: Hi, I'm Sean Stevens, and this The Good GP episode of Concussion was recorded in front of a live audience at GP19 in Adelaide. We'll be aiming to do more live episodes of The Good GP in 2020, so keep your eyes peeled and join our audience at a venue near you. Thanks. Today I'm interviewing Dr. Jill Cowan, who's chair of the RACGP Sport and Exercise Medicine Specific Interest Network, and she's also a committee member for Sports Doctors Australia. For the next 15 minutes or so, Jill and I, and Tim and Christina, are going to be discussing concussion. Welcome, Jill. Thank you for having me. So let's get straight into it, Jill. Tell us, what's concussion? Concussion.
2: So concussion is a transient change in brain function, secondary to either a direct or a transmitted mechanical force to the brain.
1: Alright, fairly straightforward, but it gets a lot of press. Who gets concussion, well, apart F- from sports does.
2: Anyone. That's the important thing about concussion is that it's not just something that you get from contact sports. So it's commonly seen in falls, in people who've had road traffic accidents, in people who've suffered a domestic violence episode, and also in kids falling off their bikes, falling off the monkey bars, that sort of thing. Interestingly enough, only 16% of concussions are actually sports-related.
1: All right, that's a lot lower than I thought. Well, one of my most important clinical roles is as medic for my son's Year 5 South Perth (laughs) Stingray's Aussie Rules team. Big shout-out to Connor and the boys, Stingray's gold. One of the jobs I have to do, in fact one of the most common jobs I have to do, is assess the boys for concussion. Obviously people expect me to have a higher level of knowledge than the average parent. Jill, can you give us in that sort of uncontrolled setting some tips as GP parents how we could assess kids with possible concussion?
2: Okay, in the community there's a very useful tool that's called the Concussion Recognition Tool, CRT5, and that can be used not just by medical professionals. From a medical professional point of view, there's a sports-related concussion tool called the SCAT-5, which gets good reports in general assessments. But from a GP point of view, it's often described as arduous and long. What can be useful from that is that there is an initial emergency assessment page which Mm -hmm. is page two of the SCAT five, that is a useful thing for you to have on the sidelines if you're attending sporting events. Okay,
1: thanks. Tim, you're a coach of a couple of your soccer teams. How do you handle that sort of situation?
0: It's tricky, isn't it? Because it's a dynamic situation and every incident's a little bit different and it depends a lot on the child and the situation, and in particular the sport they're involved in. What are the kind of things you're looking for in that assessment, Jill?
2: Okay, so in anybody that suffers a concussion, we're looking for symptoms like headache, nausea and vomiting, neck pain, fogginess, or dizziness. Possible visual disturbance is sometimes reported. Dizziness is an interesting one because if somebody presents with an initial complaint of dizziness post a head knock or a traumatic force to the body, their odds ratio is 6 for sustaining a subsequent concussion. So that's a really good little tool. If they're dizzy, you should really have a high index of suspicion. What witnesses see is also very useful. So, for example, you may see a child or an adult come off a sporting field with a blank or vacant stare. They may have a brief loss of consciousness, although this isn't required to make a diagnosis. And they may posture or seize. And then afterwards, there can also be further information gleaned from witnesses who may have had the patient at home for 24 hours, for example, and noticed that their memory is impaired or their balance is off and they're unsteady on their feet. Mm-hmm.
0: Are there any more particular high-risk sports, do you think, for concussion?
2: I think that's a really difficult question to answer. There's been some recent evidence out of Murdoch looking at more significant brain injuries that, in fact, it's not the contact sports that seem to produce the more significant brain injuries. From sport itself, a child has just as much chance of coming off their bike and, and sustaining a force to the brain than they do in a sporting environment. So I think that's a difficult question to answer.
1: What about you, Christina? Have you had any experience in assessing concussion in the community?
0: Uh, Well, I appreciate this session actually with a two-year-old son and hearing that maybe I've got a few of these things to look forward to in the future. But certainly I don't at the moment coach anything or umpire or have that need, but my need is within the general practice setting. Mm -hmm. So I guess in probably more of a delayed scenario than what Sean and Tim have alluded to. So I wonder if that changes the scenario in terms of if it might be a few hours, even a day or two, later, that that might change how you'd assess the situation.
1: Yeah.
2: It does to a degree, but it doesn't in that the symptoms that we've just talked about and the collateral history that we've just talked about is still very important and is still the first things you probably would want to know as part of your history. The key in general practice is to have a high index of suspicion. If you hear a history with a mechanism that you suspect has caused a transmitted force to the head or a blow to the head. And after that, obviously, it's about assessing the patient with an examination. And what we want to do is essentially initially exclude focal neurology because that will take us down a different path and we'll not be thinking about a concussion. We'll be thinking about a more significant traumatic brain injury. If focal neurology is excluded from a physical examination point of view, Then other things that are useful from a more concussion-based assessment are assessing for spinal cervical spine neck tenderness, looking at poor balance, and that's quite easily assessed with tandem gait, heel-toes forwards, and then five backwards. Maybe doing a brief vestibular ocular assessment, looking at eye movements, and it's particularly interesting that when you do saccades or other eye testing on these patients, often their symptoms will get worse or if you're following them up subsequently, they may have settled from a symptom point of view, but you can actually re-provoke those symptoms by doing a brief FOMS, for example. Another thing that's becoming more and more apparent in the literature is that often these patients will have dysautonomia and that a baseline tachycardia can potentially highlight that a patient has got a concussion. So i ask you to assess their vital signs as well. And that sounds quite complicated, but in fact, it's all very simple and things that we can do in GPs. And there's really useful resources from Duke University and YouTube that show you how to do these brief vestibular ocular assessments, for example.
1: Amazing well, what's on YouTube,
0: isn't mm-hmm. it? The interesting thing, I think, is it's probably a matter of, actually, if it's a child, say, insurance setting, taking that child off the field is a definite thing. There has been this culture in the past with sports of just getting on with it and getting the player back onto the ground as quickly as possible and what you're talking about is a much more detailed examination, particularly if you're dealing with children, you're asking them to walk and check their balance and look at their eye movements. You don't want them watching what's going on in the ground around them and a five-second glance over the top of a child in the middle of a footy field is just never going to achieve what you need to achieve there.
2: That goes back to the message which is basically recognise, remove and refer.
1: Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah, the three R's. Jill, why is it so important to manage concussion well?
2: We basically want to optimise our management with the aim of improving, obviously, quality of life, return to usual baseline, and also hoping to improve long-term outcomes. Our current knowledge of concussion is... Ongoing, there's ongoing evolution of our knowledge and at the moment we still don't really understand what the long-term outcomes of either repeated concussions or a single concussion or many sub-concussive episodes are. So all we can do at the moment is essentially manage people to the best of our knowledge now and the best current guidelines in the hope that that protects them in the future.
1: I'll never forget and it's something that's stuck with me was at a practice meeting and there was a very senior colleague who worked in New Zealand and he was asked to clear one of the elite rugby players owned the biggest farm in the district cleared him, played next weekend, got knocked out and died. Mm -hmm. And a story like that, I think, always Mm -hmm. makes you wake up. And it's a horror story, but the best thing you can do is learn from other people's mistakes. Mm -hmm. And that, to me, has always brought home the importance of assessing concussion and assessing it properly. Mm -hmm. So if we look now at high-profile cases, Steve Smith is probably the most recent one. Australia lost the third test because of some doctor ruling out our best bats. Run us through, Jewel, what happens there when someone like Steve Smith is uh, in question?
2: Look, it's not really any different to what we do on the sideline at our children's games or what we do in our practice for follow-up assessments. I think the great thing about the Steve Smith story was that it actually highlights that concussion has got an evolving nature. And it highlights the importance of why, if we see somebody who's had a potential concussive mechanism, they should be supervised by somebody who's responsible for 24 hours. Because even if they initially appear fine, things may change in that initial period.
0: The other interesting thing about it is the movement of the sports bodies around changing the rules around concussion. So, Mm. you know, the interesting thing about Steve Smith was he was actually able to be replaced in the game, which is the first time that Mm. had actually been enacted. My understanding is the English Premier League next year will be introducing the same rules. So in soccer, you can actually be replaced in the game rather than be substituted out. So there's a bit of a changing landscape and the attitudes around concussion are really changing quite fast. The
1: NFL in America, it's a big thing, because, you know, they use their heads and helmets as battering rams, and there's a big move to get away from that, and people are leaving the sport. Christina, did you have any comments around that?
0: I was just going to say as a GP one of the things we love to do is preventative medicine Mm -hmm. so we've talked a little bit there about assessment and management but if we're wanting to keep people like Steve Smith on the grounds then what would we be educating patients, families, parents in terms of preventing concussion?
2: There isn't any good way at the moment to prevent a concussion. Quite often we're asked about in sport are mouth guards useful? No they protect yourself from facial injuries and from dental work but not from a concussion. At this point the evidence does not support that. Similarly with Helmets. The evidence is that they support skull fractures, but they do not support concussive prevention and there's been some recent things about wearing headbands for soccer to try and prevent sub-concussive impacts, but they haven't been shown to be useful either. There's lots of ongoing research in that area. Right, the so trouble is it's like a yolk in an egg, and you can protect the shell, but you still can break the yolk.
0: The other interesting question I think we get asked in general practice a lot, Jill, is how long before someone can go back. You always get this for the last week of the footy season, and there's pressure to get someone back as quickly as possible. I'm sure you see this all mm-hmm. the time. What are your thoughts on that?
2: It depends on the individual. I think that's probably the first thing to say and I think it depends on what you're using as your assessment tool and how in-depth an assessment you're able to do and I think that's important to remember because we'll see people in say for AFL for example going back within seven to ten days but we have to remember that they've got lots of computer-aided cognitive assessment tools for example which give the doctors increased security. Whereas in a general practice setting, we don't have that. And the key with our management is that obviously we need to initially think about the patient having sort of 48 hours of cognitive rest and rest from physical activity and importantly, rest from screen time, particularly on phones and on iPads. And then really it's about a graded gradual return to both cognitive activity and exercise. So if it was a child that came to see you in the practice, they probably would have up to a week ideally off school. And during that week, some. They'd, they'd love that. I know, but the parents <laughs> would not. Um, <laughs> some of that time would be spent just resting. Some of that time would be starting to do some homework at home, increasing the ratio of work to rest so that you go from 15 minutes work in an hour to half an hour, Um, and grading that through and then returning to school maybe for half days or break time then to half days then to full days and similarly with exercise after 24 hours we do want people to exercise because we know it helps with the alteration in heart rate you can sometimes see in concussed patients but what we want is them the first day to potter to the letterbox and back and slowly increase their exercise aiming that they aren't making their symptoms worse so we're trying to increase our activity levels at sub exacerbation sort or threshold
1: level. One thing I found interesting when we were talking about this podcast leading up to it was it doesn't even have to be a blow to the head, it can be a blow to the body. What is it about the blow to the body, what in the history would you look for to suggest concussion?
2: So any firm impact to the body can create a transmitted biomechanical force to the head and importantly that's why neck tenderness is a good examination finding to take on board because if somebody's had enough force to their body to create a tender neck whiplash type injury or feeling then that makes you suspect that they have an increased risk of a concussion too. Are there any
1: investigations we should be performing or is it all clinical?
2: So no concussions, a clinical diagnosis, there's no investigations required as long as you haven't got focal neurology, and okay. um, which of course then means you're not looking at a concussive episode. There's lots of research at the moment looking at functional MRIs, looking at cerebral blood flow, looking at biomarkers in the blood, but none of that is available for us as GPs to use on a daily basis.
1: It's all clinical. Some excellent material here. I was wondering if you can give us your three take-home messages and then I'll get a quick wraparound from the rest of the
2: Panel. My three take home messages would be that concussion is a clinical diagnosis and it can be an involving injury, that a graded paced return to cognitive and physical activity is important and helpful, and if in doubt, sit them out.
1: Very excellent points, yeah. Tim. Oh, that's great. Yep, there you go. Set up for all of us. Thank you. Thanks, Jill. Thanks very much.
0: Thanks, Jill. We we might take the opportunity to go to the floor and see if there's any questions out there. Does anyone have any questions about concussion for Jill? So where I work, we're encountering quite a significant problem with this, where private schools are putting very strict rules around concussion, basically saying kids can't go back to sport for four weeks. Mm -hmm. And what we're seeing there is
2: that patients are coming in to see us as GPs and the parents are saying you need to clear them and sign that they didn't ever have a concussion because we can't allow them to have four weeks off school. Do you have any helpful ways to talk the family through that conversation? So my experience is that this is happening in WA as well, in the private school system. We're normally a three-week cut-off, which is what World Rugby has decreed as their cut-off for people under 19, and that's why it's been picked in WA. My assessment is that it should be on an individual basis. We know that in children that a prolonged set of symptoms isn't called until after 28 days. Whereas in older adolescents and in adults, we expect 80 to 90% to have recovered by 10 to 14 days. So we expect in younger children that there's potential for slower recovery, although that's not always the case. So I would proceed as I would with a normal concussion assessment (coughs) irrespective of what the school said and then if I felt that there was a justification that they were fit to return to sport and I had evidence backing that I'd be happy to write my opinion. It would be between the school and the parent the ultimate decision. At the end of the day if they're safer to be out longer than they are to be out not long enough and it's interesting if you look at the research that's been done in animal models and look at cellular changes post a head impact or a concussive injury what seems to occur is that that the physiology is slower to settle than the symptoms are, so that symptoms improve, but in fact it's possible that the underlying physiology is not back to normal. And I think that's sometimes useful to discuss with parents because they're not aware of that will ultimately lead to longer lockout periods, even though at the moment if you look at consensus statement information in sports related to concussions, there isn't an actual lockout period recommended.
0: Got another question over here. Is there any room to allow them to go back earlier where there is less exposure to the similar injury?
2: The rule regarding return to sport or exercise is that it must be sub-symptom threshold. Essentially, we do want them to do some exercise now. Historically, we've wanted people to rest and rest and rest and what we've found is actually that is counterproductive. Um, From a team sport point of view, I probably wouldn't be so keen you know if they're playing rugby I'm not going to clear them to play a game of netball I'm more likely to clear them to do non-contact rugby training with you know low intense straight line drills initially and then adding in some ball skills Um, and the other thing is that I would always insist that they saw me for reassessment before they returned to contact training not just return to full play but I think that one thing we're missing here is the point that we must remember that it's not just about sport and we've got to remember that we potentially are seeing people in our rooms who've had, say, a domestic violence episode or a fall off a bike or a monkey bar that maybe we're not thinking about concussion in.
0: I've got one more question. So just quickly following on from that, uh, there's a perception in the community, and, and my wife and I back in the day when we had kids, we we felt that perception that soccer is safer for little kids than rugby. So is there a statistical difference between concussion, between soccer and rugby?
2: I can't give you actual figures today. Um, but what I can tell you is there's a lot of research going into subconcussive impacts and we know that repetitive headering of the ball in training produces recurrent subconcussive impacts where people aren't symptomatic, but we don't know if that, that potentially causes long term issues and, and that's a lot of the CTE debate it goes around the well, is it the two concussions somebody had that potentially causes long-term problems or is it the 500 sub-concussive impacts that cause them and we just don't know but I think it would be unrealistic to say that soccer isn't within you know the boundaries of having risks as well
0: yeah thank you thanks a lot on that note I think we might say thank you very much for talking to us excellent